0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the opal mining region of South Australia lies the little town of Cooper Pedy. You're welcome to visit, but don't expect to see much. There aren't many buildings, though the landscape is dotted with ventilation shafts. There's almost no movement at all. So if this is a town, where are its 3,500 residents? Look down. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In 1943, three regular-looking U.S. cities were constructed at record speed but left off of all maps. Oak Ridge, Tennessee... Richland, Washington, and Los Alamos, New Mexico. All held laboratories and sprawling industrial plants, as well as residential neighborhoods, schools, churches, and stores. The three cities had a combined population of more than 125,000, and one extraordinary purpose, to create nuclear weapons as part of the Manhattan Project. Their design was driven by unique considerations, such as including a buffer zone for radiation leaks or explosions. In each case, there were natural features, topographical features, that were considered to be favorable. In all three cases, they were somewhat remote. In the case of Richland and Los Alamos, very remote, which offered a more secure environment, of course. But also, in the event of a disaster like an explosion or a radiation leak, it would minimize the potential exposure to civilians. The sites were selected far from one another in case German or Japanese bombers somehow managed to penetrate the United States. Even the most advanced aircraft at the time would not have been able to take all three out on a single bombing run. K-25 plant at Oak Ridge, which was where they enriched uranium using the gaseous diffusion method, of which I know absolutely nothing else, was the largest building in the world under a single roof spanning more than 40 acres. For perspective against a modern equivalent, and to accidentally steal some of their thunder, that's about two Amazon warehouses. Before you begin any building project, you have to clear the site of annoying things like trees and high spots and people. In 1942, the government approached the families that lived near the Clinch River in Tennessee, some of whom had farmed that land for generations and kicked them out, telling them the land was needed for a demolition range so as to scare off any holdouts with the threat of adjacent explosions. The town scaled up fast. Oak Ridge was initially conceived as a town for 13,000 people, but grew to 75,000 people by the end of the war, the biggest of the secret cities. The laboratories took up most of that space. But rather than constructing basic dormitories for employees, the architects and designers settled on a more suburban vision. To pull this off quickly and secretly, the architects relied on prefabricated housing. In some cases, a house might come in two pieces on the back of a truck to be put together on site. These were called alphabet houses, A houses were the most modest, read tiny, while D houses included full dining rooms. Allowances might be made for large families, but housing was assigned based on seniority. And race. This was the early 40s, after all. The secret suburbs for factories manufacturing megadeths were segregated by design. Their houses were called hutments, little more than plywood frames that lacked indoor plumbing, insulation, or glass in the windows. Ironically, at the same time, the first two public schools in the South to be desegregated were in Oak Ridge. They even threatened to secede from the state of Tennessee in order to desegregate. I don't get how these things go together. There were white families in the Hutmits as well, And all the residents of the lower-class neighborhood were under more surveillance and stricter rules than the families in the nice houses. How strict? Well, maybe like forbidding married couples from living together. By the end of the war, most of the white families had been moved out of the hutments, But many of the African-American families continued to live in them until the early 50s. To get a real sense of how bad these things were, I could describe them in greater detail, or I could send you over to see the pictures on the Vodacast app, the partner for today's show. What is Vodacast? It's a podcast listening app. Wait, I know you already have one. Otherwise, it's unlikely you'd be listening to this here, Uh, except for my buddy Ersbo, who listens on YouTube. Love you, babe. Whether this was what the designers initially intended or not, the Vodacast app is going to be an amazing tool for nonfiction educational type podcasts like this, both for the show and for the audience, because it provides a really quick, simple way, all in one place to listen to your favorite podcast and get all kinds of supplemental information. And on my end, It's really easy to put together that supplemental information. You guys know how I've been struggling lately with the lung issues. I'm not even going to tell you how many times I had to stop and take a break during recording this episode, where that used to be a just do it in one breath process. So anything that makes it easier for me to get back into the swing of doing my podcast, it is A-OK by me. Vodacast is available on both Android and Apple. Check it out right now. These towns didn't appear on any official maps, and visitors were screened by guards posted at the entrances. Anyone over the age of 12 had to have an official ID card. Firearms, cameras, and even binoculars were prohibited in the entire town. Billboards were installed all over the place to remind workers keep their mouths shut about their work, even though most workers didn't know very much about the project's actual scope. For example, your job may be to watch a gauge for eight hours and flip a switch if it goes too high. You don't know what you're measuring or what the machine is doing. All you've been told is to flip the switch when the needle hits a certain number. The use of words such as atomic and uranium was taboo, to say the least. In Los Alamos and Richland, the entire neighborhood could have the same mailing address. At Oak Ridge, Street addresses were designed to be confusing to outsiders. Reminds me of the rare occasions I had to mail my goat milk soaps to Japan. Bus routes might be called X10 or K25, while dorms had such simple names as M1, and there were no signs on the buildings to tell you which one was which. The town was full of such cryptic ciphers, and even the employees didn't know how to decode them all. When the U.S. dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima, Japan in 1945, the city's secret was out. Many residents celebrated this turning point in the war, but not all. Mary Lowe Mitchell, a typist in Oak Ridge, was quoted in an exhibit at the National Building Museum in D.C. The night that the news broke the bombs had been dropped... There were joyous occasions in the streets, hugging and kissing and dancing and live music, and singing that went on for hours and hours. But it bothered me to know that I, in my very small way, had participated in such a thing. I sat in my dorm room and cried. All three cities remained part of the military-industrial complex, continuing to work on nuclear weapons during the Cold War, as well as broader scientific research. Today, the facilities at Oak Ridge are heavily involved in renewable energy, minus the barbed wire fence and guard posts. For most of the 20th century, if the U.S. was doing it, so was the USSR. We had closed cities to build nuclear weapons, and so did the Soviet Union. We had three. They had lots. Like, a lot, a lot like multiple screens on the Wikipedia list a lot. Where the U.S. began to open its closed cities after the war, the USSR was building more and more of them, and not just for nuclear weapons. These closed cities were nicknamed postboxes because they would be named for the nearest non-secret city and the end of the postcode, or they were simply called boxes for their closed nature. During the two decades following World War II, Dozens of closed cities were built around the country. Some were Nokugradi, science cities, or Akademkrodoki, academic cities, while others developed military technology and later spacecraft. The official name was Closed Administrative Territorial Formations, or, and I apologize to anyone who speaks even a lick of Russian for this, Zakritae Administrative Zakritai Administrativno Territorialny Obrazovania, or ZATOs or ZATOs. ZATOs is a hell of a lot easier to say. These cities were largely built by slave labor from the Gulag prison camps which at the time accounted for 23% of the non-agricultural labor force in the Soviet Union. They were guarded like gulags too, surrounded by barbed wire and guards, with no one allowed to enter or leave without official authorization. Many residents would not leave their city once between their arrival and their death. That being said, the captive residents enjoyed access to housing, food, and health care better than Soviet citizens anywhere else. While most towns in the Soviet Union were run by local Communist Party committees, military officials oversaw the secret cities that would eventually be home to over 100,000 people. Even during construction, officials were ordered to use trusted prisoners only, meaning no Germans, POWs, hardened criminals, or political prisoners. Nevertheless, even living alongside gulag prisoners, residents believed they were making a valuable contribution to their country. Nikolai Rabitnov, a resident of Chelyabinsk 65, remembered, I was sure that within our barbed labyrinth, I inhaled the air of freedom. Arzamas 16, today known by its original name Sarov, was one of the most important sites in the early development of the first Soviet atomic bomb and was roughly the Soviet equivalent of Los Alamos. Scientists, workers, and their families enjoyed privileged living conditions and were sheltered from difficulties like military service and economic crises. Leading researchers were paid a big salary for those times. Chelyabinsk-65, or Ozersk, was home to a plutonium production plant similar to the American facilities at Richland. Located near a collective farm in the southern Ural Mountains, Chelyabinsk 65 was more or less built from nothing, where Arzamas 16 was an existing town the government took over. After the basics of the city were complete, early years were fairly difficult for the residents. The cities lacked basic infrastructure, and suffered from high rates of alcoholism, in Russia, no, and poor living conditions. Of principal concern in that arena for the residents of Chelyabinsk 65 the Mayak plutonium plant dumped its nuclear waste into the nearby Teka River, causing a health crisis not only for the residents of the box City, but all the villages along the river conditions at Ozersk would not improve until after the death of Joseph Stalin in 1953. You remember that story. It was in our episode for Want of a Nail, and I was about to say, also is mentioned in the Your Brain on Facts book, whose audiobook is now available on all platforms, except Audible. It's been quite a process. But I just double-checked it, and I mentioned Stalin 14 times in the book, but never about his death. Anyway, bringing things back down to Earth. Owing to that plutonium plant, Chelyabinsk 65 is still one of the most polluted places in the world. Some residents refer to it as the graveyard of the Earth. Somehow, though, it's considered a prestigious place to live. After the Cold War had thawed somewhat, the government polled citizens as to whether or not they should open the city. And Overwhelmingly, people voted to keep it closed. In fact, half of the nuclear scientists said they would refuse to stay in the city if it was opened. As one resident explained, we take pride in the fact that the state trusts us enough to live and work in Ozersk. In 1991, the Soviet Union officially disbanded, and its 15 constituent republics became independent four of which had nuclear weapons deployed on their territories. This was of no small concern to the West, as these newly formed nations didn't have the financial or technological means to properly store and safeguard these weapons. With budgets a fraction of what they were in the decades before, the standards of living in the Zatos quickly declined. Security went with it, as the soldiers who guarded the Zatos also saw their wages slashed. With dwindling prospects for employment and limited security, scientists suddenly had the freedom not only to leave their city, but to leave their country. Fear quickly spread in the United States that they could help develop nuclear programs in other countries like Iran. In 1991, the Non-Logger Act financed the transportation and dismantlement of the scattered nukes, To not only reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world, but to provide the scientists there with proper employment. One result of this effort was the International Science and Technology Center in Moscow, which employed many former atomic scientists in non-weapons programs, and still exists today. And it's good that those scientists were able to continue to follow their life's work and passion. And I'm lucky that I get to continue in my passion, making this podcast. Thanks to the support of my fabulous listeners, people who buy merch, yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch, join the Brainiac Break Room or the subreddit, which you can reach through yourbrainonfacts.com slash social, and of course, all of the amazing supporters over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. A warm and grateful welcome to new members like Edgar, Sharon, Ms. Fragile Left, Eric, Rita, and Dana. And I have to shout out the people who, without provocation, raised their contribution amount. Folks like OJ, George, Paul, Robin, David, who raised his twice, and Eric, who's also given me like a hundred retweets since the show began. Remember, the best way to help a podcast you like is to tell other people about it. And while it doesn't work the algorithmic magic some hosts would tell you, it really doesn't hurt to leave a review. That carries with it the added benefit of having your opinion read out to potentially millions of listeners. I mean, like, really theoretically, I don't have a million listeners. The review I'm reading this week gets to be by itself because it is so long and detailed. So huge thanks for this review to The Mastercast. Trivia nerds rejoice! This show is an educational podcast about facts and the stories behind them. Host Moxie LaBouche covers a wide range of well-researched topics, with perfect delivery that hooks you in every time. Subjects covered in the past have included music, history, parties, and so much more. The writing and production are phenomenal. It's structured and informational with no small talk. Despite this, there is a fair bit of comedy in how the stories are told. While people have credited the show with getting them into podcasts, LaBouche is also known for her amazing radio voice and does voiceover work as well. At first, I found her perfect radio voice a little too calming for work, but the facts are too interesting to make it a sleep podcast. Even the commercials are entertaining, and on a more important note, at a leveled volume. Yes, thank you, God, so annoying when the host is at like a four and the commercial comes in at like an eight. It's like when you're watching TV and the dialogue is a whisper and the action sequence is the Memorex commercial. Some of my favorite episodes so far have been We Can't Have Nice Things, Arts and Antiquities Edition, and Project Pigeon and Acoustic Kitty, Trigger for Violence Against Animals. That was a wartime topic. As a longtime listener, I highly recommend the show. Facts truly don't get much better than this. Thank you so much for that review, The Mastercast. For those who are curious about that username, they are a student-run daily podcast recommendation channel. You can find them on uh, Twitter at MastercastPods and Instagram is The Mastercast. And while you're there, make sure you're following Brain on Facts Pod on Twitter and Your Brain on Facts on Instagram and Facebook. And oh yeah. I'm on TikTok. It's going to be mostly VO, but you know I can't ever go anywhere without some bonus facts, and that is at Moxie LaBouche. If you're looking for an immersive escape, look no further than the sponsor for today's show, the City of Ghosts podcast. City of Ghosts is an audio drama about wealth, corruption, entrenched power, and the ghosts of New York City. It's a supernatural neo-noir thriller starring Bridget Lundy Payne of Netflix's Atypical as a misanthropic information broker who makes her living buying and selling the dirty secrets of the city's elite. With themes like personal identity, immigration, city corruption, mental health, queer characters, and the hidden pasts that define us all. City of Ghosts is made with and by a diverse team and features immersive cinematic sound design and a lush score. And the best part is, City of Ghosts is starting now. You can get in on the ground floor. No worry about getting lost if you jump in in media rays or trying to go back to Episode 1 and catch up. Episode 1's happening right now. Look up City of Ghosts on your favorite podcast player or go to cityofghostspodcast.com. A lot of my friends have had babies in the past year or so. Uh, First children, all of them, I've noticed. So I'm definitely going to recommend that they all check out the Healthy Postnatal Body Podcast with postnatal expert Peter Lapp. Peter answers all your postnatal health and fitness-related questions and does interviews with a wide variety of expert guests. Genuine experts. No goop stuff, okay? Subscribe to the Healthy Postnatal Body Podcast on your favorite podcast player. Learn more at HealthyPostnatalBody.com and be sure to download your free postnatal health guide. If you need to hide a city from your enemies, you'd do well to move it underground. Built in the late 50s in Wiltshire, England, The massive complex, codenamed Burlington, was designed to safely house up to 4,000 central government personnel in the event of a nuclear strike. In a former Bath Stone quarry, that's Bath the town, the city was to be the site of the main emergency government war headquarters, the country's alternative seat of power, if the worst should happen. Over two-thirds of a mile or one kilometer in length, and boasting around 60 miles or 97 kilometers of roads, the underground site was designed to accommodate the prime minister, cabinet staff, civil servants, and an army of domestic support staff. Blast-proof and completely self-sufficient, the secret underground site could accommodate up to 4,000 people in complete isolation for up to three months. Although it was fortunately never used, All those roads ran between underground hospitals, canteens, kitchens, warehouses, dormitories, and offices. The city was also equipped with the second-largest telephone exchange in Britain at the time, a BBC studio from which the PM could address the nation, and a pneumatic tube system that would relay messages using compressed air throughout the complex. An underground lake and water treatment plant could provide all their drinking water needs. A dozen huge tanks could store the fuel required to keep the generators running for about three months. The air in the complex could also be maintained at a comfortable humidity and heated to about 68 degrees Fahrenheit, 20 degrees Celsius. The complex was kept on standby in case of future nuclear threat to the UK until 2005, when the underground reservoir was drained. The supplies removed, the fuel tanks emptied, and the skeleton staff of four dismissed. Some cities were not intended to be secret, but were lost to time, at least until recently. In what's being hailed as a major breakthrough for Maya archaeology, in February 2018, researchers identified the ruins of more than 60,000 buildings hidden for centuries under the jungles of Guatemala. Using LIDAR, or Light Detecting and Ranging, scholars digitally removed the tree canopy from aerial images of the area, revealing the ruins of a sprawling pre-Columbian civilization far more complex and interconnected than most Maya specialists had supposed lidar is a lot like sonar or echolocation like bats use only it's a laser mounted under a helicopter by calculating the precise distance between the airborne laser and the different points reflecting on the earth's surface including the leaves on trees computers can generate a three-dimensional image of what lies beneath to put the density of the jungle into perspective Archaeologists have been searching the area on foot for years and had not found a single man-made feature. LIDAR is revolutionizing archaeology the way the Hubble Space Telescope revolutionized astronomy, said Francisco Estrada Belli, a Tulane University archaeologist and National Geographic explorer. We'll need a hundred years to go through all that data and really understand what we're seeing. The project mapped more than 800 square miles or 2,000 square kilometers of the Maya Biosphere Reserve in northern Guatemala, producing the largest lidar data set ever obtained for archaeological research. The Old School held that Mayan civilization existed in scattered city-states, but these findings suggest that Central America supported an advanced civilization that at its peak had as many as 14 million citizens around 1,200 years ago, comparable to sophisticated cultures like ancient Greece or China. The LIDAR even revealed raised highways connecting urban centers and complex irrigation and agricultural terracing systems. Despite standing for millennia, these sites are in danger from looting and, of course, environmental degradation. Guatemala is losing more than 10% of its forests annually, and habitat loss has accelerated along its border with Mexico, as trespassers illegally burn and clear land for agriculture and human settlement. By identifying these sites and helping to understand who these ancient people were, we hope to raise awareness of the value of protecting these places, says Marianne Hernandez, President of the Foundation for Maya Cultural and Natural Heritage. LIDAR has also helped scientists to redraw a settlement located on the outskirts of Johannesburg, South Africa, and it tells the beginnings of a fascinating story. Scientists from the University of Witwatersrand believe the newly discovered city was occupied in the 15th century by swana speaking people who lived in the northern parts of South Africa. Many similar Swana city-states fell during regional wars and forced migrations in the 1820s, and there was little physical evidence or remaining oral tradition to prove they were there at all. Though archaeologists excavated some ancient ruins in the area in the 1960s, they couldn't comprehend the full extent of the settlement. By using LIDAR technology, the team was able to virtually remove vegetation and recreate images of the surrounding landscape, allowing them to produce aerial views of the monuments and buildings in a way that could not have been imagined a generation ago. Using these new aerial images, they can now estimate that as many as 850 homesteads had once existed in and around the city. It's likely that most homesteads housed extended families, meaning this was a city with a large population. There were also stone towers outside some homesteads, as high as 8 feet or 2.5 meters high, with bases 16 feet or 5 meters wide. The academics believe these may have been the bases of grain bins or perhaps burial markers for important people. There's also evidence of several refuse stumps that may evince a certain level of wealth and power in the region. If you're waiting on tenterhooks for all the information, I wouldn't necessarily hold my breath. Researchers believe they're still a decade or two away from fully understanding the city's inhabitants, how the city came to be, and why it ceased to exist. Modern technology also helped us find an ancient city in Cambodia. Constructed around 1150, the palaces and temples of Angkor Wat were, and still are, the biggest religious complex on Earth, covering an area four times larger than Vatican City. In the 15th century, the Khmer kings abandoned the city and moved to the coast. They built a new city, Phnom Penh, the present-day capital of Cambodia. The life of Angkor Wat slowly ebbed away. Everything made of wood rotted to nothing. Everything made of stone was reclaimed by the jungle. An international team led by the University of Sydney's Dr. Damian Evans was able to map out about 370 square kilometers around Angkor in unprecedented detail in less than two weeks. No mean feat given the density of the jungle. Rampant illegal logging of valuable hardwoods had stripped away much of the primary forest, allowing dense new undergrowth to fill in all the gaps. It was initially unclear whether the lasers could even penetrate to the forest floor. The prevalence of landmines left over from Cambodia's civil war is another big checkmark in the pro column for using LIDAR. The LIDAR's findings were staggering. The archaeologists found undocumented cityscapes etched onto the forest floor, with remnants of boulevards, reservoirs, dikes, irrigation canals, agricultural plots, settlements, and orderly rows of temples. They were all clustered around what the archaeologists realized must be the royal palace, a vast structure surrounded by a network of earthen dikes, the 9th century fortress of King Jayavarman II. To suspect that a city is there, somewhere underneath the forest, And then to see the entire structure revealed with such clarity and precision was extraordinary, Evans said. It was amazing. These new discoveries have profoundly transformed our understanding of Angkor Wat, the greatest medieval city on Earth. Most striking of all was evidence of large-scale hydraulic engineering, the defining signature of the Khmer Empire, used to store and distribute seasonal monsoon water using a complex network of huge canals and reservoirs. Harvesting the monsoon provides food security and made the ruling elite fantastically rich. For the next three centuries, they channeled their wealth into the greatest concentration of temples on Earth. Angkor Wat was a bustling metropolis at its peak, covering 600 square miles or 1,000 square kilometers. For another dose of perspective, It would take London seven centuries to catch up to that size. Bonus fact, and not to be an extraordinary pedant, but monsoon refers not to the heavy rains in the rainy season from May to September, but the strong sustained winds that bring them. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Some cities are hidden, not for subterfuge or dereliction, but by necessity. 80% of the world's opals come from the area of Coober Pedy, but that wealth is nothing to the sun. It's going to continue with its Mad Max motif. Hope you like summer high temperatures of 115 degrees Fahrenheit or 47 degrees Celsius, but underground it's only about 74 or 23 respectively. When heavy mining equipment was introduced a century ago, people took advantage of it to dig themselves—homes, a church— And later, hotels, a museum, casino, gift shop, and of course, a pub. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and the source note links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And remember, if you ever need any corporate or e-learning voice work, moxielabouche.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places